Thank you for tuning into the Project Login Podcast. The Project Login Podcast features Mainers working in technology jobs across the state. It's meant to be a career exploration tool and follows an informational interview format. Professionals from across Maine will be featured from CIOs to software developers to business analysts and more. Our goals are to expose our listeners to various technology jobs at Maine companies by people who do the work and raise awareness of education and training pathways into those careers and ultimately raise aspirations of young Mainers to pursue high-wage, in-demand tech careers. Today's guest on the podcast is Michael Cato. Hi, Michael. Good morning. How are, How are you doing, you? Angela? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. More than happy to. So tell me, where do you work and what is your role? So I have the honor of serving as the Senior Vice President and CIO, the Chief Information Officer, here at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. And how did you get to where you are? Yeah, that's a much longer conversation. Right? <laughs> uh, my, my short description that I often give is that I came in through the side door. My undergraduate degree was in the sciences, so I actually have a bachelor's in zoology. I was a pre-med student. I was focused on a career in medicine. I actually spent two years in medical school um, before I ever pursued a career in IT. I had an interest in computer science when I was an undergrad. Doing computer science and pre-med was just more than I could handle at the same time, so I picked one. And it was only years later when I had an opportunity to start to build in a, a career in IT. I was much to my surprise initially of just how fulfilling I found it because the thing that drove me was solving problems and helping people. And while for a long time I thought that medicine was going to be the way that I would do it, um, I was really happy to discover just how many opportunities there were to do it in IT. And so for years, the big thing I struggled with was just what's, what, you know, what's my area of focus, right? That's was, especially when I first started, that was the thing that IT professionals often asked each other, you know, are you hardware, software, or do you focus on this area or that? And it was a long time before I found my answer, which was, you know, I, I love working with people, right? So focusing on leadership and helping teams um, clarify the things that are most important to the organization and how we pursue them and um, pulling the resources together and inspiring folks and recruiting people. I mean, those are the kind of things that I really get excited about. And so I've had the good fortune to serve as a chief information officer since 2012, first in much larger public institutions, and then for the last seven years, I have worked in liberal arts institutions. So I came to Bowdoin two and a half years ago. Awesome. Now, you mentioned medical school, and you mentioned a little bit of college and post-secondary training. Do you have anything specific to IT, or was it on-the-job training? It's a combination of both. I did a lot of um, on-the-job training. I actually have an MBA. I decided to go back and get my master's a few years ago, actually the two years before I became a CIO. And... I chose to focus, to, I selected a program that did not have an IT focus. What I was really interested in was adding to my collection of tools, the business side and the leadership side and the organizational behavior side and accounting and budgeting, um, strategic thinking. I mean, the things that I discovered I had a talent for, but I really wanted to get a lot more of the formal education to kind of round that out. And so even though I was working in North Carolina at the time and I could have picked, there were a ton of programs that would have an IT focus, I decided I didn't want to do that. I did a much more generalized MBA. And I think it's actually served me really well just because that's the type of, of leadership that I'm focused on. Yeah, I have my master's in organizational communication and leadership. Nice, yes. Tell me if you have any special certifications or credentials. I know sometimes in IT, those special certs or those industry-recognized credentials are of value? 
They are. And I actually have, so I, I, I don't know, I'm laughing now because I realize it's become somewhat of a habit that I start the programs to learn and I get so focused on learning what I wanted. And once I've learned it, I'm not so really worried about completing the, the certification. So I've done years worth of certification and training on project management. Similarly, I've done organizational communication. Um, I have a couple certificates on leadership. And so I've done, um, actually last year, I did a training on designing your life, uh, an approach to use design thinking applied to your personal professional life. And I got really interested in it because I was surprised at how often I would come into a new organization and I would meet people who were managers, not because they liked management, but because it was a way for them to make more money. And they weren't really good at the management side because they didn't like the people side of the job, but no one had ever sat down and had the conversations with them to help them express, well, what are the things you're really excited about? How can we focus you there and build a growth path on those things? as opposed to putting you in a management role when you're not really a people person, right? And so it, it becomes a negative impact on them and the organization. And so I've done a, those types of trainings to kind of give me a, a broader perspective on my work that I think has served me really well. It's not that I'm offering this and saying that I would recommend this for anyone else. You know, that when I'm often asked that question of career path, um, I don't think there is any singular career path for CIOs anymore, if there ever was. And I know so many chief information officers who came from the technical side, but I also know a lot of really successful ones who were on the project management or the academic technology side. It's not as many of them because I think that the, the recruiting process tends to skew our focus to bring in people who are super technical, but that's actually not the hardest part of the job, right? The, the job of leadership is really about people. And it's about relationship. It's about communication to your point. Organizational communication is a big part of the job. And if you don't know how to express yourself well, and more importantly, if you don't know how to listen, if you don't know how to bring people into a, in, into a conversation and really help them express more than what they're telling you at the beginning, right? To hear for the thing that's not quite being said or respond to the thing that excites them and the things that concern them, you're not going to be very effective at leading organizations of any size, frankly but especially larger, more complicated organizations where IT sits in the middle of so many different needs of any organization, and it's true in higher ed, you can't do that well if you're not really good at building relationships and communicating and talking to people. I agree with you, though. I think that's actually a really great answer. I think, um, I think our listeners would be actually interested to hear about some of those leadership traits and some of those trainings and, and things that they could focus on if they wanted to as well. I know in my role, when I came into this organization, which we're just a small nonprofit, you know, one of the first things they said is, what are your goals? What do you want to do? And I just love that. I, I love that. I'm like, oh, you're going to support me with what? That's great. <laughs> so tell me what a typical day or week might be like for you. Yeah, so that's an interesting question to consider now. Pre-COVID or post-COVID, right? Right. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and in some ways, the pieces, some of the pieces haven't changed. A typical week, a typical day for me is spent in conversations. I'm one of those people, if you actually looked at my calendar, I've had colleagues and friends see my calendar and cringe. Like, how can you possibly get anything done if you're going from meeting to meeting to meeting? For me, I see those meetings as conversations and opportunities to connect with people and understand what their priorities are. As long as that's what I'm doing, those meetings are actually useful. 
it's when I have a standing meeting that we've forgotten what the purpose was and you know we're just getting together because we have to and we're going over information we could have shared by email those feel like a waste of time but if what you're trying to do is solve problems I think you find I find at least that the more I can interact with people the more successful we can be in surfacing the actual challenge as that's one of the one of the things about design thinking I love that design thinking starts with the premise of really understanding the problem, understanding the person, who, the people who are having those challenges, and then working with them to really surface the actual problem, not what they said at first, which might be the way they're expressing it, but might not be the actual problem. And if what you do is try to solve what they said, as opposed to understanding what the issue actually is, then you're gonna end up at the end of the day not actually being successful. So for me, that a typical day, a typical week is built around um, as many of those conversations that are necessary to be successful in helping move the conversation forward and the organization forward. I joke about COVID because now that we're doing so much of it virtually, in some ways it's been challenging because you lose, even with a video conferencing system, right? You lose some of the kind of clarity of facial expression and body language that you know you count on to know if you're engaging people and if you're actually getting your points across or really hearing them and, and that they feel that they're being heard. And so it's requiring us to be even more engaged and finding creative ways to really put things on the table and try to be very clear. You did mention, you know, it's all about problem solving and working with the teens. So what problems might you deal with? So I think one of the things that's been a lot of fun, I'll be honest with you, is in the time of COVID for Bowdoin to choose to teach all our classes online for the fall semester was a huge choice for us, right? Bowdoin is a 226 year old institution we were a residential institution. Uh, we literally did not teach any classes online at all before all of this started. So switched in the spring to the emergency response to helping our faculty and helping our students complete the semester remotely was, and it took a Herculean effort on the part of our faculty and my teams and the IT organization as a whole worked closely with making sure faculty had those resources available. And at the same time, when it became clear that our fall stance was going to be also need to be online, being part of the conversations to help us cast a different aspiration for the fall so that the emergency version, the, I joke the break glass version, right, that you did with two weeks worth of planning is going to be hopefully very different than the version you can do in the fall when you have time to plan for it. And that meant we had to bring together the resources and the people and the expertise and really be able to engage with the community to say, there is a different way to do online education if you actually plan for it. And if we are able to work with faculty, help them understand and, and help them take apart their courses, frankly, so that they could express, here are the most important issues that I'm trying to help my students grasp on you know, these modules that work through the semester. Here are the tools that I typically use and might there be an online equivalent or an online version that we can do. And in some cases we might find things that allow faculty to have even a greater experience of connecting with their students than they would in person because the platform just allows you to do some very different things that you could do. Right? My favorite example is it's much easier to bring in a guest speaker for a 20-minute slot of your class because you're doing it virtually than you could ever do in person. Right? And so suddenly the range of conversations you can engage your students with is just almost endless. And Really, it's been exciting to watch how that's all played out for so many of our faculty. And I think in many ways, we've been as successful in that the fall experience, the reports we're getting from our students and our faculty is decidedly different than the spring. 
I'm very careful about the language of better or worse. It's, it's not so much about that as much as they are expressing that they're having much richer experience in the fall because of all the preparation work that was put in place. And that took up a, a significant amount of the time and focus um, as we went through the spring into the summer. I love that though, because it was so student focused. It was very deliberate. Tell me about um, the kinds of decisions that you might make. I take your point about being student focused. So I'll give you one that came up through this entire period. We had been having conversations with students and our faculty about doing a mobile computing program. So Bowdoin has the advantage of being small, right? 1,800 students. And, and it was becoming increasingly clear that yes, all of our students have some kind of computer, right? Every, all the surveys that we did, all the conversations we were having, pretty much everyone has one. But the type of computer that you have, the age of the computer that you have, can create a very different experience for how successfully you can complete an assignment. You know, a faculty member would tell me, yes, it's the same assignment. Yes, all of my students have computers, but if you have a one-year-old MacBook, it can complete the assignment much faster than a student who has something that's four or five years old and they used all the way through high school and that's what they brought in and now they're a junior, right? So just, it creates very different circumstances. So that was part of our planning anyway. And as we went into the COVID experience, as we went through the spring, we started to see and get reports from students that this was becoming part an, an amplification for the issue because now they didn't have access to the computer labs we had on, on campus, right? So if they didn't have one personally and now they couldn't go to the facilities we had here. So for the spring, we were shipping laptops out to some of our students when they were telling us they were running into these issues. We were taking laptops that we had that were normally going to be used on campus and shipping those out. But we realized that didn't actually address the issue at scale. And then adding to that, students were reporting having challenges getting access to the internet. And it was so interesting for me because it wasn't just the pieces we were used to seeing that I live in a community where they're just, the broadband isn't that great. We were seeing that as well. But what we were also seeing for the first time is my entire family is at home. And so everybody's trying to do video conferencing at the same time. And it's, you know, if it's both parents in the house, it's both parents and my siblings, you know, it, it, it just creates a much greater demand on the internet connections you have at home. And so as we went through that experience, we decided to uh, modify the mobile computing program plan that we had been working on. And we opted to do iPad Pros because we could include, we could choose devices that had built-in wireless internet, cellular internet in them. Um, so that if you have, and we told students, if you can pay for it on your own, please go ahead and just turn it on and, and um, use it. If you need help paying for it, contact us and the college will pay for it. So that's allowed us to extend the reach for a number of our students so that in, in, it's been interesting to engage with them because they report, you know, I'm in an apartment with three other students and now we all have our own dedicated connection and allows them to be much more successful than they would have been otherwise. But one of my favorite examples, you know, coming up to that decision and being at an institution that could do something like that and could support to do something like that was really exciting. I love that. It leveled the playing field and it, it addressed some of those equity issues and it didn't matter whether they were rural or not. It was like exactly what you said. It was the connectivity in the house where they were. Tell me some advice you might have for a young person that's looking to get into the IT or computing field. My favorite piece of advice has been to not think that there's only one path in. Right? And that having conversations, and I think the program you're doing, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the podcast because getting a chance to hear from different individuals who are doing different types of work in IT, who've had different career paths, I think can really emphasize the point that there is no singular way in. 
And it's been one of my great concerns in my 20 years working in higher education. Often I would meet students who'd say, I can't possibly have a career in IT because I'm not a computer science major, or that's not really the thing that I'm as excited about, right? But they're really good at working with people. And, and they've had no idea that things like project management even exist, and that this can be a very valuable way for them to get into the field and contribute in ways that we really need those voices, but we often don't get them because they think about IT in only one specific way. So just really gaining an appreciation that there's multiple ways to get in, and there's a really wide array of ways that you can have a very fulfilling and successful career in IT. Yes, thank you, that is good advice. Could you tell me what the company culture's like at Bowdoin? Yeah, I, I, it's like one of my favorite questions, right? Because I, I think culture is one of those things that you have it regardless. And so the question is, what do you want to do? How do you want to shape it? How do you want to improve it? So the starting way I would answer is that because of the size of the institution, because we are such a, a small community, it's really intimate, right? People know each other by first names, know each other really well. In many cases, folks have worked here for a long time. And so they, they know the institution and love the institution and really love the work they do. And that shows up in some very powerful ways in, in that the relationships between that students can have with faculty is the core of what we do, absolutely, right? That relation, that close intimate relationship between our faculty and our students. But it's also been exciting to see how many of our students have close relationship with the staff, right? And, and administrators and members of my team and people that they've gotten to know over their time here. And even though I went to a liberal arts institution for my undergraduate, it was much larger than Bowdoin, I think twice as large as Bowdoin at the time. And I think that rang as true for me there, right? I had great relationships with my faculty. I knew they cared deeply about me. I maintained relationships with many of them over my entire life, um, but not with at the breadth of what I have watched here and experienced here. And it's one of the things that I think it contributes to the organization being as institution being as successful as we are. I think within IT, that's also evident. And so one of the things we've been trying to add to it is to also continue to question who we are and are we solving the problems that the faculty and students are facing now versus just the solutions we put in place five years ago that worked really well then. But how are we making sure that we're staying abreast of what the, how the opportunities are evolving, how the needs are evolving as well. And so I would offer one piece that, I, that we are being very explicit about within IT is an intentional focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and bringing in more employees that are uh, to help us be more representative of the student population that we are serving. And one of the big reasons I think that's important is that research shows that more diverse teams are much better at solving complex problems. And that's because you have different ways of thinking and different lived experiences that you can draw from. And so having them, having the, the representation is important, but also having an organization that is inclusive and that we really are encouraging all voices to be heard so that we can get every idea on the table and really start to question the way we work together. That's so important and I appreciate that work. Are there internships or job shadow opportunities? Uh, for Bowdoin students, absolutely. We have a really active and successful career exploration and development office. And they've done some, they, they're continuing to do some very powerful work of connecting our students into internship opportunities at the institution, but also around the country and around the world. As you can imagine that, you know, this time of COVID has made a lot of that much more important and in some ways much more challenging. One thing that I'm also excited to see is that Bowdoin IT has actually had a history of doing internship programs for others to come into Bowdoin who were not Bowdoin students. 
So a number of members of the IT organization first started as interns here. And I think that's been one of the things I have been really excited to inherit and to build on as we move forward. That's great. That, that pathway, the foot into the door, they didn't necessarily have to be a student. I love that idea as well. I do like to ask our guests, what's your favorite place in Maine? Well, and, and this is where I, I realized when you shared this question ahead of time, that I've been here two and a half years now, and my answers still start with the ocean. I was born in Jamaica. No one can tell anymore, right? I've, I've been here my entire life, but my family, my extended family is still in Jamaica, so I'm drawn to the water. My five-year-old son is very much, he's behaving more as a Mainer than I am because I love the water, I love being on the beach, and I still think the water's too cold here to go swimming in, right? <laughs> uh, but my son has no fear of the cold. He loves to jump right in the water. So I spend, my wife and my son and I spend a lot of time at the, at, on the water. Popham Beach is one of our favorites just because we love to walk out to the, on the outcroppings on the island. We've had a really great experience there. We did get stuck out there once. I'll tell you about that one day. Even in the winter, we had to walk through the water to get back. Um, we spend a lot of time at uh, Lookout Point and Simpsons Point. It just, we like to end the day just down on the water, even if it's only for 15, 15 or 20 minutes, to spend a little bit of time as a family and kind of decompress. So every time I talk to family and friends, we remind them that, yes, we're two, outside of, two hours outside of Boston, but we're minutes away from the water. And we fully, we're taking full advantage of that. Yes, and it's beautiful in that area. And honestly, if you can start or end your day that way, that's just wonderful. Well, thank you so much for doing this podcast episode, Michael. I really appreciate the invitation, Angela.